Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Giuseppe Ugazio, Assistant Professor and Chair of Behavioral Philanthropy at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. His research focuses on moral philosophy, neuroeconomics, and behavioral science in the context of philanthropy. In this episode, Professor Ugazio shares insights into decision-making regarding the value of human lives and money, and explains the complex balancing act between philanthropic and for-profit partnerships. We also discuss the future of philanthropy, including his work on building a personalized AI-based philanthropy model to match individuals with causes they are truly passionate about. Professor Ugazio shares how his training in philosophy has influenced his interdisciplinary career and emphasizes the need for individuals to help others and promote societal well-being. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Giuseppe Ugazio. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for uh, joining me here in Geneva. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you today. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story and how you got to the University of Geneva. Right. So it's been uh, quite some traveling before this. Uh, I started at, uh, in Milan with my studies, uh, then moved to, to London, to LSE. Then I joined in Zurich, uh, my PhD. And uh, being in Zurich and getting to know the research context of the of the Swiss universities, that I really like the, the environment here. Uh, so before, uh, well, actually, while leaving to to the US, then to do some postgraduate training, uh, I really wanted to come back here, and there was this uh, perfect opportunity to join as the uh, chair in behavioral philanthropy at University of Geneva, uh, that then uh, basically made my dream come true to come back and uh, pursue my uh, career as an academic in Switzerland. Yeah. And with your PhDs, you have two, right? Right. And one's philosophy and the other is neurobiology? Correct. Or neuroeconomics. Economics, yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, so why did you transition or make that extra shift at the to economics and more of that focus? Yeah, so uh, there's two main reasons why I have uh, two, two PhDs. One is more the contents and the interest reason. Mm. Uh, so I started my, I did my career in undergraduate, graduates in uh, philosophy, philosophy of social sciences and uh, moral philosophy. And while doing my PhD in the area of moral philosophy, I started realizing that I was not so much into uh, just thinking how people think about doing the right thing, but more how do actually people do the right thing or fail to do the right thing. And I was uh, lucky enough to be doing my PhD in an interdisciplinary group that had uh, philosophers, but also uh, economists, psychologists, neuroscientists uh, that all were thinking about uh, the, the topic of uh, altruism and uh, mm. prosocial behavior. And uh, so I started to get familiar a bit with uh, the experiments and the behavioral um, behavioral experiments that you could do in order to uh, study uh, how and why people make decisions. Mm. So I started drifting towards the uh, researching how do people uh, make moral decisions. For instance, how do emotions play a role in uh, distorting, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, moral decisions? Uh, how the the state you're in could affect how you're doing a decision, which is uh, something that normally moral philosophy would. Uh, even considered, uh, you know, possible because moral moral decisions are just, you know, something about the uh, about reasoning and how you, you know, choose one principle and then stick to it for for your actions. So then, were your first like parts of research as masters and like your first dissertation was that all philosophy? Was it emotion based? Like when we looked at your research, there's a lot of papers about like emotions, correct? Right, so there is, a, yeah, there is one paper about emotions. One paper actually, it's uh, quite interesting because it's. Uh, I went uh, directly from just uh, you know philosophy and doing a little bit of behavior to one of the at the time frontiers 
uh, in uh, neuro neuroscience, be uh, cognitive neuroscience research, mm-hmm. which was uh, using brain stimulation yeah. in the context of prosocial behavior. So those were the two papers that I um, that I used in the thesis that were more uh, applied or empirical. Mm-hmm. And then I had a third paper where we discussed uh, the implications of the findings that you could get through uh, experimental science for philosophical thinking. And so those were the, the the bulk of the of the first thesis, and then the the reason why I started the second PhD is actually quite pragmatic. That together with uh, my advisor, we thought it would be easier to get a grant to self support my studies mm. if I were to start to apply as a PhD student rather than a postdoctoral researcher because oh, I have okay. no formal training in anything uh, scientific or you know, neither neuroscience or behavioral uh, psychology and so on. Yeah. So then we. We actually managed and were successful in getting uh, this grant to kick off the second PhD. Uh, and then basically I just did the, the, the research work and took the courses that I needed to complete the second PhD, which was the, the topic was uh, basically the same. How do we do moral decisions or we fail to, uh, to to comply with moral decisions? Very similar to the uh, brain simulation study that I mentioned before that focused on uh, fairness. We had the second study where we looked at uh, how we make uh, decisions about honesty. Um, and how the, can could we manipulate this with uh, brain stimulation? Uh, so it was more or less a natural uh, follow-up uh, study. And then I took a bit of a deeper uh, dive into understanding or studying uh, how do we treat uh, moral decisions, moral values compared to values that are more uh, practical, like financial values or um Basically, uh, that was the, the the main focus then of the of the other papers that I looked at in the um, in, in in my thesis for the neuroeconomics uh, mm-hmm. uh, PhD work. And then, real quick, before we get into the neuroeconomics, could you like were you able to manipulate decision making or like the or like with brain stimulation? Like, could you like actually see different outcomes based yeah. on that? Yeah, so basically we had, uh, in both experiments, we had, uh, so the one on fairness or on honesty, we had a control group uh, that received a stimulation that lasts a few seconds, and this stimulation has no actual effect on the neural activity or neural excitability. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we had active uh, stimulation groups where we uh, lowered or increased the excitability of the neurons we stimulated, this means that these neurons were more or less likely to be engaged in a task. And in the fairness case, we could actually show that receiving one type of stimulation people would be more uh, more compliant with the fairness norm when there was no punishment, so when they had only to rely on their own moral compass, mm-hmm. or they would be, um, or less, depending on the type of stimulation, and vice versa, when there was a punishment uh, threat enforced, uh, the, the effect flipped. So those mm-hmm. who uh, before were uh, more compliant in the voluntary situation became less compliant, huh. and vice versa, those who were more com- uh, less compliant in the voluntary situation became more compliant when there was a punishment threat. So what we concluded from this was that this uh, brain area we were stimulating is actually responsible for um, helping you to adapt to the social context so that in the end you can behave in the optimal way. So when there is a punishment threat and this area is more engaged, you're uh, more compliant with the norm so you wouldn't get punished. But then if you realize you can actually get away with uh, not complying with the norm because there is no punishment, then you actually comply less with it. Uh, and in the second case, when we looked at honesty, we could also show that uh, on average, because we only looked at group uh, decisions, we don't know exactly who lied or not within the group, but we could find that those who were stimulated were uh, much more honest than those who were not, uh, yeah. that didn't receive stimulation. 
Is this electric stimulation yes, with humans? Exactly. So it's uh, it's electric stimulation. Of course, it's uh, completely safe, yeah. and uh, the effect lasts only about five to ten minutes after you stop oh. the stimulation. So the experiment usually lasted twenty minutes, and ten minutes after you have no noticeable uh, effect, even at the neuron level. Uh, practically, what people feel is a bit of tingling on their on sure. their on their skin, and, it, and yeah, but it's completely safe. Yeah. Um, and for, for me, for both uh, studies, what was, was really interesting is that if you ask people what should be your behavior, what's the, from, you know, again, moral philosophy, what, how should you behave? They all knew what their yeah. good behavior was, and then they failed to put it into practice uh, when they received the, yeah. the, the stimulation. Or they were better yeah. at it uh, when they received the, the, the stimulation. Very interesting. Yeah. And with these papers, you said that on the back end, you also wrote a, a piece about kind of what to do with the results. Could you give some advice on like how people should make better decisions? Mm -hmm. So it, the paper we wrote was not so much about uh, what to do about the findings, more how, how philosophers or a philosophical uh, search could use these okay. findings. Okay. Uh, there is uh, one very uh, long-lasting debate called the naturalistic fallacy that you cannot derive what you ought to do from what mm -hmm. you actually see. So is it actually meaningful at all or not when we know how you behave? So that was what the paper was looking okay. at. Mm -hmm. um, to come to how to interpret these findings or what could people uh, take of this, I think was really uh, helpful from these studies is you understand what are the building blocks of decisions. We try to link the brain activity, the brain areas that we stimulated. We know is responsible for uh, what we call uh, social cogn uh, cognitive control. Mm -hmm. So basically you have to control your behavior in a way and when you're in a social context and this uh, brain error is helping you to do that. Uh, so whether it's sticking to a social norm, understand when you can safely violate it and so on, that's what this brain error is doing. So when you understand this, then you could uh, think of strategies um, you know, that people could deploy to stimulate this area without having to do it uh, with electricity, right? So in, in a way you could think about, we know this area is important for this type of behavior. Now let's find out a way that we can uh, teach people to mm -hmm. use this, to have this part of the brain uh, more involved in their, um, in their daily decision-making so that then they will behave in this way. The, that, that would be the easy and uh, simple uh, takeaway from it. What's uh, really hard about it is that when you learn about how one brain area is working, you, you don't know how you're going to affect a number of areas that are connected to this. Sure. So it could be that in this very specific situation, what you find is that people are more honest, but it could be that if something else has changed that you don't observe uh, in an outside, then actually people become less honest or they become more honest, but at the same time, they also become, say, a jerk. Sure, or, yeah. you know, so you don't know what's... Uh, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really a complex uh, uh, matter then to understand what are the, the long-lasting effects or the uh, sort of the cascade effects of changing, uh, of, of changing you know, the way one brain area works, right? But it's, uh, it's trying to take a scientific look at what we're already doing with schooling what you know we're we think a method is working and there yields desirable effects could we uh, already anticipate uh, if we were to change something else then what would happen and hopefully it goes in the in the right direction but that's a very big question yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think philosophy like takes into account like the biological mechanisms for a lot of decision making moral or eth like when people use their ethics do is it common for philosophy to really take into account like the biology behind it. 
It's a great question. Uh, actually, there is a, a paper, it's called uh, The Secret Joke of uh, Kant's Soul, uh, mm -hmm. that was uh, uh, written by Joshua Green mm -hmm. and colleagues. And basically what they what they, the, the paper is about is showing, so Kant was this uh, philosopher mm -hmm. that uh, had this theory that your know, moral decisions should be uh, rational deductions. Mm -hmm. So you should basically uh, um, deprive yourself of any emotion, any anything else than just pure reason. And by following pure reason, you would find the moral principles that are universal, uh, universalizable, mm. everybody could use. And following these, then you, you can make perfect moral decisions. Mm. And what the, the, the paper was about was showing that actually the, the decisions that uh, Kant would make in certain situations, especially in the trolley dilemmas, mm -hmm are stemming from rationalizations of our emotional reactions to a situation. So what we think is actually the right thing to do in that situation is actually an emotional mm -hmm. uh, reaction to it. And vice versa, uh, if you think of uh, utilitarians, uh, they, they would be better at uh, just looking at consequences, being be more rational and use, use more like what would be pure reason mm -hmm. rather than relying on emotion. So uh, yeah. long story short, I think, it's always helpful to know what, uh, how you come to why and how you come to a certain conclusion. And then if you can still uh, use uh, what we would say, the pure reason um, to, to, to justify or to, to, um, to support your, your, uh, your, your thinking, uh, then even better, right? But you should be aware uh, of how and why you make a certain decision. I think nowadays what's really common and really popular is talking about uh, biases, implicit mm -hmm. biases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're still there, right? When you're making a decision, even if you know they're there, but at least you know they're there and you can put something into place to uh, alert you uh, of, of your decision, that your decisions could be affected by these biases, or how could you make sure you're not, uh, you're not going to be affected by things, mm -hmm. say, by uh, anonymizing certain things, being blind to certain yeah. aspects that would then bias your decision. Yeah. When we get into like the algorithm stuff later, I'll be interested to hear about like biases in the uh, language models and how mm -hmm. that might come mm -hmm. up, but we'll get there. Yeah. And yeah. So before we keep going, could you explain what neuroeconomics is as well as what behavioral philanthropy is? Mm -hmm. Right. So let me start from the second. So behavioral philanthropy is just, uh, uh, it's a way to use behavioral science, even neuroscience. If, uh, if we will get at some point, we'll get there too, to understand philanthropic behavior. So the, 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 the giving behavior, uh, broadly defined, uh, for myself, philanthropy counts both from, for like, you know, big grant makers. So the, the big foundations, uh, the, the philanthropic organizations, institutional philanthropic organizations, as well as the individual givers. Right. Mm -hmm. And we do know a lot about the individual givers. There is a lot of studies on that. We know much less about the institutional, uh, way of giving and how the patterns of behavior are there, uh, which to reconnect to the natural language models that we'll touch later. That's what we're trying to do with <laughs> is to get an idea of, uh, of the institutional um, behavior of philanthropic organizations. So behavioral philanthropy is just using insights from behavioral science to understand philanthropic behavior. Neuroeconomics, it's uh, similar to uh, behavioral economics, experimental mm. economics, behavioral finance, neurofinance. Basically, they are under, they're studying uh, how we make decisions that entail economic incentives, uh, looking at so for behavioral looking at the psychology or the me 
cognitive mechanisms, uh, emotions, and so on that take a, that have a role in this uh, type of decisions, and try to explain these decisions. So if you come back to to to, to the point on philosophy, we have also in economics the theoretical models, right? Uh, you should be uh, making a certain decision uh, in this way that would be optimizing your um, your returns. However, we see that people are risk averse. We see that people don't like uncertainty. They are present bias and so on. So we that we know because of the experiments we're, we're doing, right? They're deviate before we would just say, oh, they are irrational. They're not making the, the right decision. Now what we're uh, doing with behavioral and neuroeconomics is trying to uh, make sense of this irrationality, right? It's why do we make this uh, supposedly wrong decisions? Neuroeconomics then, it's uh, looking inside, uh, inside the, the, the heads of people when they're making decisions trying to understand where do we represent value, where do we represent risk, where do we represent uncertainty, time, uh, time the reward of the the timing of the reward, and so on, so that we have more building building blocks to understand how economic decisions are made. So we don't treat we have an input, uh, what you, you the decision you're making about and the output and then a black box. We're trying to open this black box mm -hmm. and see what are the mechanisms that lead to different types of uh, uh, of decisions within the economic or financial domain yeah. yeah and with the experiments how do you go about choosing participants because i would imagine having participants say from geneva mm -hmm. as compared to los angeles like that alone like the region that they grew up in that alone would influence it very heavily right so we have uh normally what's um i would say 90 percent of the papers we read about use uh Bachelor students, so students from the university who normally volunteer either uh, for uh, study credits uh, or for uh, for financial rewards, so some monetary reward. Uh, so what we know, and there is uh, actually a, a big current, especially in the evolutionary biology uh, domain, uh, you may have heard the weird uh, psychology. It's a... It's a um, a framework that's been uh, talked about, especially by uh, by Professor Joe Henrich at uh, now he's at Harvard, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, that says that uh, weird stands for a wealthy, educated, uh, no, sorry, West Western, uh, educated, rich, industrialized, and democratic <laughs> uh, participants. These yeah. are the, the ones we make uh, big inference, uh, big conclusions about. Right. So we study, but these participants, they're quite homogeneous and quite. Uh, weird mm -hmm. yeah. uh, with respect to actually a representative population and to to me what was most striking is when you look at uh, basic decisions like in terms of where vision science right recognizing mm -hmm. some some patterns we find these basic functions are completely different in people who grew up in a say in a urban environment compared to a less urban environment so if these decisions are completely different then we cannot really extrapolate also what i would call higher order decisions mm -hmm. or more mm -hmm. complicated decisions um in say in economic terms, from this uh, from this uh, samples we use that are mostly university students to then the general population. Now there are this taking more and more into account. We're uh, trying to get around this uh, by, for instance, using um, services like MTurk from Amazon or Prolific or similar services okay. that where anybody could really register from uh, the US, but anywhere in the world, and then you would ask these people to complete experiments for you participate in studies so you're broadening at least the uh, uh, the type of people you're uh, you're experimenting on uh, you're in inviting to your study mm -hmm. so you get a bit more a representative sample um, that then you can really generalize your uh, conclusions to are those done online now 
yeah, many, many studies are done online. There is also studies that look, uh, that compare the online studies to the in-lab studies to try to see, you know, how similar they are. And normally, especially a few years ago, you would find a lot of uh, uh, similarities. Now we are getting a bit uh, to this to the point where there is so many research done online that mm. also people start to get familiar with, uh, sure. Uh, first, with uh, with the tasks they're doing, so it's a bit of repetition, uh, and second, they they're starting to get more and more sophisticated in trying to get away without doing your study properly, just huh. complete as quick as possible and get the demonian go. Yeah. So then you, there have a bit of issues on the quality of data uh, online. So there is uh, some concerns there, and there are different ways that uh, services like the ones I mentioned are trying to counteract this yeah. to ensure you have uh, the highest possible quality. Very interesting, and then. Earlier, when you were talking about like risk aversion and especially like finance in finance, do you think financial models will start to account for like how different investments might make people feel better? Like when you talk about ESG and like those things, where because right now I know like there's like the beta and like risk involved in like the in the models. Do you think they start to they might might start to add more like human like emotional components to the models to like hopefully better reflect the decision making process? Yeah, so the, the, there are models already that uh, that do this. However, when you take it on aggregates, and there was most mm -hmm. of the finance model look at this behavior, but on on the aggregate, so this tend to to cancel out. So we don't okay. we don't have too many models that focus on individual. You know, they have sure. parameters specific for an individual. Um, we will get in that direction, especially you know with now with artificial intelligence and sort of these services that try to help. Uh, you know, these uh, robots trying to yeah. help you make your personal investments and so on. Uh, we will we are going that direction. We don't have too much data in, uh, on it yet. Yeah. Uh, on it, but I, I think it's going to be uh, becoming more and more important. Right. As of today, the at least here in Switzerland, what you have it's when you go to a wealth uh, manager they are required you required to ask you you know how risk tolerant you are basically so then they would do a more or less uh, tailored strategy depending on whether you're very risk averse mildly risk averse yeah. or not so much risk averse um and to come back to the ESG question, now they're, I don't know if they already did this or they're in the process of wanting to implement something similar where they want to ask about your preferences for investing uh, more or less according to the to the ESGs uh, yeah. uh, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then could you explain the idea of human lives and money being valued at distinct neural currencies and a little bit about that paper? Yeah, so this comes back to then the, the the PhD in uh, in neuroeconomics. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, I wanted to to do there is that in, in neuroeconomics we have this uh, this theory it's called the common neural currency mm -hmm. uh, theory that basically uh, suggests or fi finds right that the most of the things we we value, so say fruits, uh, beauty, money whatnot uh, is represented by the same neural activity so you have a network of uh, of uh, brain areas that uh, represent the subjective value that uh, each person assigns to a certain item and this also allows us to compare apples and, and oranges mm -hmm. yeah. to go to the famous saying so that's what allows us to compare uh, things now if you look at the at the literature uh, you, you find some examples that the, this not maybe not the case for moral values that moral values are somehow different and uh, just to give you an, an intuitive example that comes from uh, uh, michael sandel's uh, book what uh, money can't uh, buy yeah um so what what is uh, what his lectures and in his book is about is giving examples of situations in which people really find it wrong 
to uh, to put on the same plate uh, human lives with uh, with money, right? Being the the car makers that decide to prioritize their revenues over the, the potential loss of life, to to other examples, and this kind of gives an intuition that there may be something special about um, about human lives, right? And in general, moral uh, values. So then, in in the paper we 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 can in the research we conduct in this paper where we look at this, we said okay, there's no one actually tested uh, directly. If when we're asking people to make decisions, trade-offs, uh, when the, the matter of the choice is human lives or when the matter of the choice is money, uh, if we get a similar pattern of activity or not. There were some uh, papers that looked at uh, uh, the two independently. So people would just look, okay, let's make um, a risky decision where you either save for sure one life or can with a certain probability save a larger amount and found something similar, but they didn't compare directly uh, with the monetary choices. So there could be something that's uh, still special and not uh, caught up by the, the studies. So what we did was exactly that. We didn't put participants in a, in a, in a situation where they had to make decisions either about money or about uh, human lives. Uh, and then we compared the neural activities uh, underlying the, the two types of choices and found differences. Mm. So we found that um, uh, human uh, human lives were not, uh, the, the value they would assign to, to human lives was not represented by this uh, neural activity that you find in the common neural currency. So we found areas that are typically found in uh, in social decision making, like the TPJ, the temporoparietal junction, mm -hmm. which is an area involved in empathy and uh, or taking the other's perspective or other types of uh, uh, social decisions. We didn't find this uh, sort of um, common neural currency uh, activations for for this this type. We did find it uh, unsurprisingly for the for the monetary uh, mm -hmm. task. And when you're making choice about money, you would see the subjective value being correlated to this uh, common neural currency. Yeah, and so in very very simple terms, is basically you have like the map of the brain and you see different areas lighting up. Exactly. For exactly. Whether we, they're making it moral or like a financial. Exactly. Yeah. When you're, yeah, basically we we estimate the moral uh, values uh, that you are assigned to each mm -hmm. uh, each of the options in the moral situation, and we see that the correlation in your activities in a separate part of the brain compared to when you're yeah. doing it for money. Yeah. And then when you say uh, making a decision about a life, is it a life and death situation about people, or is it like that's just going to have a human emotion impact on someone? No, so the, the what we chose to go was uh, life and death, mm -hmm. and we tried basically what we used. We asked, uh, we had told people they were taking care of someone in a coma, mm -hmm. and then they had to decide to switch off the life support okay. in order to then harvest the organs and donate it to people who were victims of an accident. Okay, um, so that was the kind of uh, um, a bit more ecologically. Mm. Valid uh, scenario of a trolley dilemma. Mm -hmm. um, still, it's quite uh, fictitious and requires some, some mental work. But mm -hmm. uh, but that, that that's the the situation we uh, we chose uh, we chose to use. Yeah. Was it a random person to them, or like, were they told like picture a family member? No. So it was uh, someone they wouldn't know. So mm -hmm. it was a completely a complete stranger. And okay. actually, we actually used uh, faces, uh, you know, random face we picked uh, from internet, and it was yeah. the same cartoon face for both. Uh, the victim and the people they would save. What we did tell them was that the person that we're taking care had a series of one of different six different criminal records that range from not huh. having any to being convicted for being a serial killer. And the, the idea was that we wanted to see if you would uh, change uh, your decisions mm -hmm. depending on the moral deservingness that yeah. you would assign to to this person. And did they? 
Yeah. So basically, uh, you were much more ready to uh, end life support for uh, a person who had a crime, yeah. uh, especially a serious crime. Uh, so you would do that when you could save uh, two other or already only one other person. While for someone who oh. didn't have a, a criminal record, people would uh, be hesitant to say that you would support uh, the life uh, end uh, of life support um, until you would say four or five people. So that okay. would, was uh, modu- it would modulate when you would uh, decide to, to that it was okay to to end uh, to end the, the life of this person. Would the sorry, would the typical philosophical like you're talking about Kant earlier? Mm-hmm. Would it just be like if you can save more than that person? So once you hit more than two people or two or more, do you make the decision to pull the plug? Right, so that's a, a great, uh, very great point that leads me to to two considerations. So first, Kant would say the opposite okay. that you shouldn't look at uh, the con- the consequences shouldn't matter too much. Uh, so what Kant would say is you have to come up with a moral norm that is uh, universalizable so that everybody could use uh, in uh, the same situation and come to the same conclusions. Mm. So he wouldn't look at uh, whether you save or not uh, more or less people, or you would that wouldn't be so important. Mm-hmm. That's more for what's uh, called consequentialists, or okay. uh, for instance, utilitarians would uh, exactly say that, right? If you have, or they would already say if the utility of the life of the person you can save, it's higher because he's not in a coma than the one in a coma, then already one-on-one you should uh, mm. Uh, turn off life support. However, what's uh, you know what's hard to, to know it's you know where you know how do you count utility, right? It's yeah. probably different from one person to the other. So then, for me, you need some moral principle to determine that, and then mm-hmm. um, that's kind of a philosophical discourse. But what's uh, irrespective of what moral philosophy you um, you follow or you, you believe is more more is better to to govern your behavior is that if you follow this norm. Then what you should find is what I would call a step function, right? That that you never kill someone, and then you get to a certain point where you always uh, end the life support of this person, right? And we don't find this. So what we find is a kind of a smooth transition that people uh, start to decide it's okay to 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 end life support, maybe when it's two or three, and then they just become certain of their choice when say it's already eight, right? So they're a bit unsure. So they're not following the this kind of uh, what they would call a step function uh, in their decision, and they're actually mirroring uh, the same way we're making the the decision in the in the intertemporal choice yeah. uh, domain, right? So when you're choosing money now versus the future. People are not uh, that good at making just a consistent mm-hmm. switch. That after you know, if you have to, if you get more than X money in Y days, then I'll pick the other option. They also have a what they call okay. an, a curve, a hyperbolic curve. Yeah. Uh, so the the two um, decision functions were actually quite similar, um, but they were very then correlating in very different areas in, in the brains. Yeah. And then uh, one last question on this: it, Do you see the use of like VR, like virtual reality? Uh, coming into the field to like make these scenarios more realistic yeah absolutely so vr is uh um as you say it's allowing us to make the scenarios more realistic by basically asking people to make decisions that feel more real and you Mm -hmm. know where the consequences are literally in your face yeah Uh, we've been using this in one study to uh, measure if people are more likely to uh, give money to the International Committee of the Red Cross when they're solicited through, uh, basically by by being put in a situation uh, where uh, people from the Red Cross uh, work, so a conflict zone, mm-hmm. uh, through VR, 
compared to when they were watching the same thing on a computer screen. And we found that people actually were more likely to give yeah. uh, to give money to, to, to the Red Cross in, uh, in, the, in the situation where they're using VR uh, compared to videos, which could be because of uh, being more uh, immersed, more in uh, sort of being, it's easier for you to put yourself in the shoes of the Red yeah. Cross personnel, and then you feel more compelled to to help on the activities of the of this organization. Right? It's just one study that uh, uh, goes in that direction. There are also studies in the trolley dilemma that uh, oh, used yeah. uh, this, uh, but I'm not too familiar with them. But yeah, it's being yeah. used more and more for that. Very interesting. Yeah, I could see that definitely taking a lot more weight in the future. And then another question about the study. You said that the decision to pull the plug and harvest the organs went up as more crimes occurred or you know theoretically occurred. Did that shift like from no crime to one crime? Was there more weight on that initial crime? There's not a as, number of crimes people did, it's just a different quality of crime. Different quality. Oh, so okay. it was uh it went from uh uh from riding the public transportation without paying <laughs> uh to uh being uh, convicted for robbery uh and uh then I don't remember the exact the other yeah. ones, but then it went uh so we had a the and you see it also in the data a bit of a difference between violent crimes where you know mm -hmm. someone yeah. got hurt. Uh compared to those who are just robberies or even more yeah. less uh, less violent crimes so there could be already something there uh, we didn't dig too much in uh, in depth on yeah. Uh, yeah. what the different quality of uh, of the crimes were that could lead uh, then to different types of uh, moral decisions we did ask people to rank how bad these crimes were for them mm. so that we could uh, individ sure. individually calculate so to say the uh, the badness of the crime yeah. and then use that in our in our data yeah our and at what point would you add the theoretical lives saved because you said like oh the harvest organs it's two lives saved and then right, eventually so we, you could go oh it's up to eight uh, at up what to point up to ten yeah, yeah. at what point would you add the theoretical lives so basically they're just uh, making decisions in different scenarios one it's uh basically use harm one person to save one and the other is two free and so on up to ten mm -hmm. right so it's completely different situations and they they're, okay. they know the the trials okay. they're gonna face uh, in advance yeah. yeah and then would you change race of the person uh online no, support? we kept that uh, neutral yeah Oh, so they didn't know like the race or it just like it was all it was just this white person okay. yeah. uh with yeah brown hair was yeah i i think that there should be in, in the publication there should be a screenshot of the okay, okay. you, you can yeah. see yeah. there uh yeah so basically we wanted this person to be as similar to the decision maker as possible and being in mm -hmm. switzerland that's kind yeah. of the yeah uh, <laughs> yeah what is personalized philanthropy right so as um um, when when I moved and started working in in philanthropy, um, one of the first things that I thought about for bringing behavioral science to philanthropy is uh, maybe what we we're related to what we were talking about before. How can we use insights from decision making? to then uh, help people make their own uh, decisions better. So personalized philanthropy is this uh, kind of theoretical work, that, uh, the theoretical paper that I laid out where I try to uh, link and try to suggest that we could use um, insights from behavioral science to then put people in situations where the philanthropic interests are uh, actually best matched so that they mm -hmm. see, uh, they feel more compelled to help others. They they realize that the causes they work for are actually uh, what they, you know, they, they're linked to what they care about and so on. And the suggestion was that to, to achieve this, you know, if in finance to make the person happiest is to 
understand uh, their risk tolerance and uh, their uh, framework of time framework of investment and so on. In philanthropy, not only you need these two because you have this financial component of uh, disbursing funds and so on, but you also have a moral component. So we have to uh, take into account also where do the moral values of people, uh, what are the most important moral uh, values for people, and you know would they be so for instance more consequential? Is would they care more to maximize their uh, their actions, the consequence of their action, or would they care most of uh, promoting a certain principle, say equality or good education and so on. Uh, so that's uh, personalized philanthropy is a way to try to understand how a person thinks when wants to engage in philanthropy and help this person make the the, the best decisions for, for themselves. Yeah, and was that, was part of that to get people who aren't currently in philanthropic endeavors to get them to start, to incentivize them to start, or to more so just help people that are already philanthropic? I think both ways, right? In one, for those who already are uh, philanthropists to then um, be more satisfied with what they're doing, be more in line with what they would uh, feel that it's a good way of doing philanthropy. And also to to make people who are not doing philanthropy realize, uh, you know, in which situation they would uh, they would be, you know, they they could do philanthropy and how rewarding it would be for them. So sometimes, you know, if you find their their, maybe people are not doing philanthropy because they they feel that it's not what their what their values are could not be promoted through that uh, through that type of actions. But maybe if you if you do manage to to show that they actually can, then they would be driven into, into the philanthropic world as well. Um, and the VR paper, in a, in a way, goes a bit also in that direction. Right, is uh, uh, trying to pull in people to mm. to feel that you know they, when you do philanthropy, when you do help, then you actually maybe feel good. You know, the warm glow uh, hypothesis uh, and so on could could actually then move people by feeling this in a more immersive situation would be the first step then for them to engage um in a different situation as well yeah are there like funds or something similar to like financial institutions where you could give this fund money and then they donate it based on your desires or anything like that because like i'm sure a lot of people out there they want to be philanthropic they don't know all the different philanthropies out there though so they could as like an investment medium to distribute the money based on whatever their desires are. Right, so there is the normal uh, way that you just give money to organizations that fundraise, like uh, UNICEF or WWF and, okay. and so on, right? That's one way you just contribute your little share. Because, uh, you know, if you say you only give $5, it's really hard to have an impact sure. with them. But then if you give it to these organizations that are trustworthy and so on, they can you know put everything together and then work on very large projects. Um, there are what's called the donor advice funds. Uh, that is okay. a bit of a different thing, which is basically... Uh, People that tell, you know, we just put large amounts of money and we tell this fund what we want to achieve. Uh, and then we hope that the uh, returns generated by these uh, funds, as well as the uh, way the money is invested through these funds, is generating the the, the positive uh, mm -hmm. outcomes we, we expect. Uh, however, there is a bit of... Uh, um, skepticism around these funds, uh, especially in the US. There was uh, an article recently showing that because you have tax incentives uh, to use these uh, funds that they were basically used for, uh, not really for philanthropic reasons, <laughs> but for, for other reasons. Okay, very interesting. And does the work with the ethical and inclusive AI, does that fit in more with the personalized uh, philanthropy or more with the blended finance? 
work. So the ethical and inclusive AI, it's a, it's a kind of a side project that started uh, because we were using artificial intelligence in one of the in the form of natural language processing uh, in one of our models. Uh, then we, we got this interest in artificial intelligence and the role that philanthropy could play. So ethical and inclusive philanthropy refer sorry ethical and inclusive artificial intelligence uh, AI refers to uh, to this current um, of thinkers and practitioners and doers uh, that are actually trying to develop AI in a way that is going to help those who need it the most that are normally those who are most excluded. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to break a bit the logics of the winner takes all that is being exacerbated by AI uh, and instead trying to deploy AI to, to really maximize those who can uh, benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's, uh, that's the EI AI. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then since you, we've mentioned it a few times now, could you explain what work you're doing with the natural language processor mm -hmm. and all that? Right, so basically going back to, to square one on uh, defining behavioral philanthropy and trying to understand how philanthropic institutions and why they engage uh, in, in doing philanthropy. So one one of the ways that we do behavioral science and try to get at the motives is to ask uh, mm -hmm. people, right? You just give a questionnaire and have them make decisions and so on. Uh, but I with this technology available, I thought that maybe this would be a bit uh, could be a bit redundant mm -hmm. since we already have documents that say why a philanthropic organization is engaging in something mm -hmm. and in what. This is uh, the mission statements. Yeah. And um, so they're not super easy to, to get, especially here in Switzerland. I think they're a bit easier to get in the in the US. And there is similar work uh, done in the US. Mm -hmm. um, Basically, what we did was to take the mission statements from that are deposited and publicly available uh, from the, the registry of all the foundations, uh, philanthropic organizations here in Switzerland. We took this and, and said, okay, here we have all the answers to the question mm -hmm. we want to ask. Let's now have, you know, we have this uh, 15,000 documents with, uh, I don't know, at least a thousand words each. Sure. How do we then uh, make sense of them? And there's where mm -hmm. we uh, use natural language processing to try to identify in which areas do organizations, uh, in philanthropic organizations in uh, Switzerland work, uh, whether they, how do they do it? Do they uh, give money, then grants? Do they ask uh, fundraise and then run their own operations? Do they both do both mm -hmm. um, and for which reasons so for which reasons then um, basically this first part we did using unsupervised uh, mm -hmm. learning in natural language processing so basically we just took the bunch of uh, words and asked an algorithm make sense of it mm -hmm. in a very uh, loose yeah. and unspecific terms for finding motives what we uh, did we came up with uh, two of the most plausible motives for uh, philanthropists to, to engage. One is uh, moral values and the other is emotions. Um, maybe a bit arbitrary, but I sure. think if you ask uh, um, most philanthropists why they, they, they engage, one of these two will come up. Sure. Uh, and then what we did, we basically looked, uh, took from the literature, there's already uh, vocabularies that define emotions. So mm -hmm. all the words that could be used for say anger or sadness or happiness. Okay. And then we created uh, vectors of these words. Mm -hmm. And then we did what's called supervised learning. So we looked for these specific words inside the documents to try to identify uh, what are the predominant emotions uh, within these mm -hmm. uh, mission statements we have. Similar where we did the same for our moral values. 
and here it's a bit of a caveat because the uh, we took the, um, uh, the the moral values the definition of uh, sorry the words that would uh, define moral values we took from uh, us research so okay. they may be different in uh, in uh, in switzerland or elsewhere uh, but still we we use this uh, this uh, this text to then get the vocabulary for different types of moral values and look for this in the in the mission statements as well uh, so then we did the supervised search and uh, that's how we use the natural language processing yeah. so what were some of the findings like what where where are philanthropies doing most of their work or what's most common at least here in switzerland Right, so the number one is education, which is a bit unsurprising, I think. Um, what we found that was not uh, uh, is it was not easy to predict was that there is a sort of a, a regional uh, unspecificity. So uh, organizations are not all based in one part of Switzerland if they work on environment, and in another part if they work. So the the causes are uh, evenly spread uh, across the country. So are also the type of organizations. We did find density uh, corresponds to you know there is then more philanthropic organizations when there is uh, more dense more dense sort of cities basically in urban settings. Um, so in in general, this, yeah, these are are the parents, right? Education is probably number one. We found a trend uh, that it's mostly it's uh, moral, uh, sorry, positive moral values being described. So I work to promote uh, equality. Mm -hmm. I don't work to fight inequality in a way. Oh, okay. And the same way, also positive emotions are more present than negative emotions. So I don't alleviate. Uh, pain uh, but i promote happiness so to sure. say right so that uh, that's another of the trends that we find is that there is a more positive discourse uh, used than a negative one and um, one interesting um uh, comparison we, we did was we took the organizations that are grant makers and those who are operational mm -hmm. and we tried to see if they, the language they use is uh, actually similar or not and we found that overall there is mm -hmm. but that there are areas in which they're much more similar uh, especially in science and, uh, and education and areas where actually they're, they're not so similar so there could be a, a barrier then in communication there yeah. and the, the ultimate goal of this work was really to try is really to try to create a, a network map of philanthropic organizations uh, to try and promote synergies between them so one thing uh, again i speak for switzerland but i think it's probably uh, possible to generalize it as well uh, abroad is that philanthropic organizations are s s supposed to be collaborating and you know all working towards the same goal but most of the times they're working in silos mm -hmm. not talking to each other uh, reinventing the wheel over and over again and so what we're trying to do is to generate a map that's uh, easy can show uh, then to to organizations or to anyone uh, where is most of the work done who is working in a certain uh, topic so that then if you want to work on this topic you can actually ask what's being done or try to mm. partner instead of just restarting a new project that maybe is already being developed or you can find areas in which no one is working and maybe there is a, a, some need and you could then uh, start uh, in this niche this would be like a map online Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're hoping to get. It's a, it's a map online that's uh, you know just have uh, different nodes, and then say yeah. the node could be the the area of work, and then we have all the organizations working on this. Uh, That'd be really uh, cool. Connected to it. Yeah. yeah. And then with the model that you guys were creating, I have a couple questions about I guess the qualifications. Is firstly, did you guys look at donor size um, between the organizations while you were sifting through the mission statements, and also when you're defining philanthropic organizations did you include for-profit non-profit and government or just non-profit so we only included non-profits okay. um 
if there is so we didn't exclude for instance corporate foundation right so if okay. uh, a bank has their own corporate foundation that is registered independently then that would be included the bank would not be included um we had to exclude uh, pension funds because here in switzerland they're cl classified as uh, foundations hmm. uh, really? so yeah oh. <laughs> um they have a similar basically have a similar legal status uh, so okay. then you would find it in the same um in the same registry uh, so, but then we we were open. So here we have two of the predominant uh, type of uh, legal status a philanthropic organization gets. It's a foundation. Normally, these are grant makers mm -hmm. or associations. These normally are more um, operational organizations. So those are the two the two of the most common ones. But we included all of them. So as I mentioned before, philanthropy for me is redefined as those who work uh, uh, to promote the common good, irrespective if they do it through you know investing time and work or investing. Investing uh, sure. or using money, so we we were, we kept an open mind as well in that uh, in that search. In terms of uh, size, we didn't. Uh, that doesn't come in the picture in selecting. It comes in the picture uh, later in terms of you know if we have an organization that uh, is more developed and larger, has more funds or more employees and so on. It will probably be more elaborated, and then it, we could look at that in. Uh, um, the richness they, of uh, mm -hmm. description of what they do, right? Um, it's easier if you are if you are more you have more funds or more people to have a good website mm -hmm. with all the descriptions of what sure. you do than if you don't, right? And but um, there is a lot of variance there, and it's already a big win if we have a website for an organization here. So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Um, we can look at that as well, uh, but mainly we, we we took whatever information on the on the mission statement that it's uh, uh, basically describing quite in broad terms what the organization wants uh, wants to achieve. Yeah, and with the map, have you thought at all, or would you envision that you could pick an organization and it would show kind of the efficiency of the dollar or the franc that if you were to donate, how much that would carry? Kind of like the I think it's called like the qual scores. So. Here in here in Switzerland, with the data we have, that's a dream because we have uh, zero information on uh, really? the financials of yeah. an organization it's unless they the want to openly uh, report it on their website. But they're not required uh, to, so they'd have to disclose it to the authorities. But this is not publicly available information, so we don't know. Uh, this is two, two big uh, problems. First, we don't we can't answer this. You know how effective an organization is, uh, which is not. Uh, uh, which is not to say effective if it's positive or bad, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in philanthropy, if you're very ineffective, it could be also good, right? You're just testing if a solution would work. You invest a lot of money and show the solution doesn't work. You can afford that because it's, you know, it's philanthropic money. You're not going to uh, bankrupt and yeah. leave, leave you know, a thousand people without a job because you failed your investment. But still, it was maybe if it was a good, uh, well-thought decision to try this uh, solution, then it's uh, actually what uh, philanthropists uh, for some people should do, take these big risks. Mm -hmm. It could be a breakthrough, 10% breakthrough or 90% failure. Philanthropists are those who could do it, right? So mm -hmm. effective here, it doesn't cor exactly correlate yeah. with uh, something positive or not. But then the second thing is that we don't know if an organization um, in their mission statement has 90% of the words that refer to education and 10% to health. We don't know if then actually they put 90% of their investment yeah. or their money in education and 10 in health maybe they do actually the opposite yeah we we have no idea about it yeah. uh, hopefully we will get access to more data and give a more precise picture um but yeah so that's uh, we don't have information to to answer that question 
And then going back a little bit when you were talking about more of the wording being positive, Mm -hmm. is that more effective at getting donations, especially for like those who are receiving donations? Have you looked at the decision-making process by like playing to the emotion of the donor more, kind of also similar to the VR thing, by being in the country virtually, I feel like that plays to their emotions and they're more likely to donate have you guys started looking at those factors? So we really wanted to look at this and in the VR study, and I'll come back to it, we actually manipulated the mm-hmm. the ending of the of the story, whether okay. the person was then uh, you know in a, was saved or not, and if that affected then how much people gave. Mm-hmm. Um in we also wanted to know, we would like to know in the in the in the actual organizations when they use positive or negative discourse, if they are better or less or worse in uh, in fundraising. And but we don't have this information sure. because we don't have any yeah. information on how much they, they fundraise and, and, and or in any of the financials. So I don't know about that. Um, there is a lot of mixed evidence on whether you know negative Im- images are stronger uh, than positive images in uh, motivating people to give, and some find that yes, it's the case. Other finds uh, fatigue, so that people then, yeah. if you exceed with the negative emotion, then you're really just uh, you know backing off. Uh, some people find that you know using positive emotions is better. So there is a lot of uh, different uh, or, um, different findings there. In our VR studies, we found no effect of okay. uh, using positive or negative ending so we found that the medium so vr versus video had an impact the increasing donations this was not uh, we didn't find that um, it was not affected by the type of emotion positive or negative nor we found an effect of uh, positive or negative emotion per se yeah. so uh, the the we can't re- we don't have a solid sure. answer for this yeah. yet yeah. and one more question on the vr study um because we keep talking about it did you guys use or did the people that ran the study use like an Oculus type of VR, was it more of an immersive? Because I know some have like full suits that you can get feedback, Mm -hmm. physical feedback, or it's more of a surrounding square that you're in. What VR system do they use? No, we were just a headset uh, that projects people then in this uh, war zone, uh, I think it was a... supposed to be Syria mm-hmm. um, and what they did have was they could interact with some objects so you you had a control in your hand you okay. could uh, uh, wave a white flag um, so you could uh, to some extent interact in the scenario and that's also something we manipulated how much people could interact um, but no it was not uh, you wouldn't get uh, it was not the super advanced uh, VR experience where you get you know vibrations or yeah. motion or stuff like that no. it was, um, and then we're talking a lot about how there's not a lot of good data. Are you, how are you guys, is the map your main way of trying to increase the amount of data sharing amongst philanthropies or, or are you guys doing other things to really try to create more data transparency? So we are trying to ask to get as much data mm-hmm. as we can, uh, promoting data transparency. One way to do this is to, we're trying to show the good you can do with data, how we can help back mm-hmm. the organizations that share the data and how why it's important to have it. Uh, the data we have, it's going uh, back to the natural language processing, this mapping exercise. The data we have, it's actually quite poor in quality mm-hmm. because we're using mission statements that by design they're very general and broad because these are fixed in time it's really hard for you to go to the authorities and say from a year to a year i want to change my mission statement that's uh, not possible by law so people don't want to say i really work on uh, you know protecting this uh, species uh, from this thing because uh, then they would be bound only to do that so they say we want to protect the environment so then it's going to be quite uh, quite 
it's hard for us to find you know sure. the, the fine grain the fine grain differences uh, between them. Um, we are finding more and more organizations that are open to share yeah. uh, data, and I hope that you know the more we show the the the, the benefits of doing this, uh, the the more others will be um, intrigued and uh, will join in in the in this. And in a way, what we are also trying to do is to um, make do with what we have and show that even with uh, little data, we we can still have uh, quite a good. Uh, Good impact then on, on the philanthropic sector. Yeah. And are there any laws or policies that are moving in that direction of data transparency for philanthropic organizations? Because I know for like the US, we mostly don't have them. And that's a big issue talking to people that want to donate is they have this idea, especially of like larger organizations that they're just corrupt and that their money is not going to be used properly. Is there any movement in that direction? So not to, so no, there is no, at least not in Switzerland, we don't have any um anyone who's actually pushing for this uh, okay. uh concretely right so and and here in Switzerland is probably the last place where you will get uh a law that forces someone to to give data more because there is much more a, a tradition of mm-hmm. you know showing that if it's good people will just do it yeah. uh so you know you have a very um very slim legislative uh, system here in switzerland you know there, there is very few laws if you compare it within in philanthropy i think you know if i just give you a random number i don't know the exact number of laws that are related to to philanthropy in switzerland but say if it was 10 in switzerland in italy you would have a 5000 right so it's a, it's much more um let the people do what they do, um, self-regulate. And then if we see there is a need for really having a hard law to, to fix something, we'll do it. But, sure. Um, it, this allows to, to for the environment to be much more dynamic and efficient, uh, provided that, 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 you know, then it also leaves room for, uh, for a bit of cheating or some, some yeah. negative side of it. But then, sure. you know, it's always a trade-off. Uh, so you try to be less bureaucratic. And so I don't think we'll have that uh, uh, anytime soon, uh, data that forces, uh, sorry, a law that forces uh, organizations to, to open their data yeah and there's still a lot of questions whether that's uh, good or bad and then um, so. yeah and then as we transition to the blended finance topic mm-hmm. i was wondering if you could just give a brief explanation of the sustainable development goals so the sustainable development goals, there are a set of uh, goals that were uh, um, ratified in 2015 uh, by all the uh, United States uh, member uh, con- states, uh, countries. Um, so there are 17 of them, each have their own sub-goals and uh, metrics to, to measure them. And uh, basically, these are a set of goals that were uh, agreed upon to say, if we want to have a better world in terms of uh, how livable it is for people, for how protected the environment is, and, and so on, um, we should achieve these by 2030. So it was a 15-year-year uh, 15 uh, uh, target um, or time horizon for, for these goals. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, basically, there, is, there are different me- ways to measure. They're completely voluntary. The country should report um, every X years on how they're doing on these uh, different goals, uh, but there is uh, no body that is enforcing yeah. these reports to come in, nor countries to stick to, uh, say, pledges to fulfill these goals and so on. Uh, so they're completely voluntary. What was really interesting of this uh, of these goals is comparing to their predecessors, say the Millennium Development Goals or the uh, sure. other sort of uh, targets that were set at the UN was that 
for the first time, uh, all the states ratified them, accepted them as a, you know as a good thing. All for, member states um, did. All member states. Wow. Uh, and that the civil society and uh, NGOs um, could participate in the, their the definition. So it was really a bottom-up, uh, as bottom-up yeah. as oh, possible wow. effort uh, to, to define them. Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the political um, the political you know, discourse and, uh, and issues that for having everybody sign on them, you don't find the term human rights in it, or you don't find uh, certain, uh, certain terms that are not uh, acceptable for certain uh, cultures or certain states. Yeah. So then there was a compromise there, but it was, um, yeah, it was a very interesting uh, uh, effort. Maybe the desirable thing for the next set of goals is to have some mechanisms that binds uh, states mm-hmm. to 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 then yeah. actually fulfill them, uh, at least to make their best effort to 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 achieve them. Yeah, kind of on that note, do they put out data saying like we are on pace, we're below pace, or like do they track every country and like show like this one's fallen behind or anything like that to like kind of not just say that these are the goals, but we're actually working on it. And also somewhat similar, does anyone audit the reports of the countries saying like, this is what we did? How do we know that's true? Mm-hmm. So the it's completely voluntary to report on this. And as you can imagine, their own, most of the reports are uh, positive reports. We achieved this, we achieved that. Uh, of course, it's also a lot of bias because people choose which uh, goals to report on. So if I'm already doing very well in education, then I'm going to show you I'm doing very well in yeah. education and I'm not showing that I'm very bad in uh, environment protection. Um and there, there is uh, so once you submit the, the your country report, there is an audit, so to okay. say, to, to control. Uh, but again, it's all completely sure. voluntary, so yeah. it's going to be a lenient uh, audit, or you're not forced to disclose data that may show that you're not really actually achieving what you are. Uh, there are uh, organizations that try to keep track, and unfortunately, we know that uh, most of the goals are uh, so most of the targets are missed. And actually, we had uh, uh, step backs, right? We we were doing not so well and now we're doing even worse especially after uh, the pandemic yeah. um yeah there was a there was a big uh, regression then to towards uh, uh, in away from achieving the sdgs and we know no we won't achieve any of them uh, by 2030 yeah right? that's kind of a bit the, the sad story of the sdgs yeah. but they are there like a sort of a utopia to to, to get there um guiding actions hopefully in the in, in that direction and yeah, that's a similar sentiment to a podcast we did in London uh, that about ESGs and the ESG funds saying they'd want to do this, but in actuality, they had companies, they invested in companies that had higher carbon outprint, out, uh, mm-hmm. impact. So it's very interesting to see what people say versus what they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can come back to brain stimulation and force this with you. <laughs> <laughs> How aggressive is the 2030 timeline? Do you know? Like, how, because you said it's unrealistic. How unrealistic is it? Because I'd imagine if, you know, we're going to get to 2030 and they're just going to have to kind of go back to the drawing board and create new goals. But it'd be a lot, I think, more inspiring if you were to say, okay, 2070, we need, you have that much time to get this done. Mm-hmm. But here's like, we can start to build up a lot more and see the progress over time. Yeah. So I think the, you know, maybe it was a bit optimistic, but you know, the 15, I think it's also a bit of a tradition that every 15 years you yeah. kind of revise where you are and then set the new goals. Uh, if I'm not wrong, the Millennium Development Goals were you mm-hmm. know, set out in 20 to end in 2015, mm-hmm. and then you would ratify the, okay. the SDGs. Um, so 
what uh, what I know in the future, what they're going to try to do is to actually pull the SDGs into sort of areas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, you have uh, SDGs on protecting life on land, life on water. So you actually would put those who are um, more similar together, and you would try to set priorities. Right? You cannot have uh, say you cannot work on anything if you don't have peace and uh, and try to dis- uh, to di- to diminish corruption. So that yeah. what are the or you can't do anything. You don't have a planet to live in. So let's prioritize certain goals and yeah. uh, try to. Uh, build a hierarchy on them of course that's going to be political um and uh so in in terms of setting a longer time frame you know we're really far from them um and the thing is that you can put maybe an unrealistic time 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 frame or realistic or unrealistic one but then i think if you put it sooner at least you're kind of trying to force people to do it is yeah, like uh-huh. asking a student do an essay in a week and then yeah, maybe yeah. you know if it's a week later it's fine if you give a deadline in one month the student will the day before send yeah. an email saying you know just uh, just kidding right yeah uh, it's always helpful to have uh, uh to have sort of deadlines or you know goals and targets that are uh closer or at least uh, easier to to imagine uh than sending it maybe a more realistic but very far goal that then wouldn't be as uh, motivating mm-hmm. for yeah. people to take cash so then what is blended finance and how can blended finance be able to like help us meet these goals? So blended finance is a relatively new concept or recent concept and is basically thinking of uh, uh, how do we mix capital that is uh, for profit, mainly intended for profit or at least mm-hmm. to generate some profit with capital that is uh, more intended for just doing good mm-hmm. and that doesn't need to generate any profit mm-hmm. so philanthropic money and for-profit money coming together sure how can we use this too right so if you think about uh what we were talking about before of uh, trying a new solution philanthropic money would be the and with a blended finance approach would be we have say we have this solution that costs uh, 10 million and now we have four millions from philanthropic capital and six million from um, for profits from market capital. Now we take this four million from philanthropy and just put them in the solution and kickstart it and see if it works or not. Mm-hmm. And we get uh, hopefully some good uh, some good uh, result. And then we say, okay, now we showed this. What you know, what, we showed that this solution could work. Let's bring in also the other capital, mm-hmm. so then we can scale it and, and make it work. And that would be one way. The other way is that we put all the partners together, and we assume that this ten million intervention has a forty percent risk of complete uh, failure. And now we say, if this fails, everybody gets some money back besides the philanthropists that put this four million in. They don't want any money back. So they're the first ones that they're not going to be repaid. Okay. Right? So if you have a you layer who is going to get uh, okay. repaid first, basically, and philanthropists are those that won't be repaid in the end. So okay. you, maybe you have the complete for profits, or you have the smaller investors that get paid first, and you have different type of investor and so on. And this is all negotiated at the beginning, right? You have this plan, and then you set who wants to be in which, uh, who can accept uh, this this amount of risk, um, and who who can't and you try okay. to have a solution that fits uh, a larger number of people so then you can uh, um, you can attract more people to this uh, to, yeah. this, to this initiative that you wouldn't be able to sure. uh, within a traditional model yeah. um, 
on one hand you wouldn't have enough capital if it's only philanthropy in the other hand you wouldn't have enough people would be willing to take such a large risk so with this uh with this compromise then you're mixing a bit of uh, contributions sure. for both and uh and hopefully you have uh, you you know innovate uh promote new solutions that would be too risky for a company to to do and at the same time it's larger than what a only a philanthropic approach could, could achieve and for the SDGs, this is really important because in many areas, we just need to experiment with with new solutions. Like the business as usual has failed, and uh, we need really to find a new way to um, to uh, catalyze interventions to make things quicker, to make things in a in a new way, uh, so that the SDGs could be achieved. Yeah, and with that, is it just the division of capital between philanthropic nonprofits and for profit companies, or are they, like you said, are they working together on the solutions? So if you have a for profit company that's working with an environmental focus, are they sitting down at the table and saying, okay, here's what we need to get to, and it's more of a team effort, or are they still going about and using the capital individually within their organizations? No, they're gonna go together. Okay. I'm defining uh, who's gonna be the first one to get uh, to get hit, basically. Okay. Who's gonna yeah. take the, the largest uh, hit if things go south. Okay. okay. And then would a model where a for-profit company say, we donate 10% of our profits to our philanthropic arm would that be like a, a similar model too or like that's more a, what it would be like a corporate foundation okay. uh so it's not like blended type, finance. so it's not really blended yeah. finance yeah. and that's the comp the organization itself that uh, decides that uh, yeah this 10 percent goes for philanthropic initiatives more a what's called a csr or you know initiatives yeah. that um it's moving towards uh, philanthropy but it's uh, normally blended finance is really taking different types of uh, mm -hmm. um of institutions and mixing them together so that they can basically bring um, bring the best uh out of all, all these institutions for this solution that wouldn't be possible if they were to do yeah. to go it uh, at it alone yeah and with philanthropic organizations what are some of the biggest gaps that exist between you know, let's say you have like Red Cross and WWF, like what are the biggest gaps in communication between the same problems that they're trying to solve? Hmm, that's a probably a million dollar question. <laughs> uh, so I think the one of the biggest things is that I really don't know what's uh, it's really too hard to for them to to know what's uh, uh, how to talk to each other, right? So mm -hmm. how uh, what can constitutes failure, what constitutes a win for one or the other, and how can they help each other on that, or what strategies they could do uh, in order to to work together, right? If you have an initiative that could benefit both, if we're talking about regional Red Crosses, that the poor people in WWF, you know, also benefit in the the, in the life, the animal life, right, or the or the uh, environment, right? What could be win-win situations? But then you have people who are overworked and have already enough on their plate and then it's really hard for them to think uh, how can we promote then a joint strategy and then this uh, leads to a lot of inefficiencies um, that that could actually benefit uh, both organizations yeah. uh, so hopefully the you know being able to provide a tool that's uh, like the mapping tool that we were mentioning before that can be used to to, to find who's doing what uh, could help uh, could help organizations and be more uh, more efficient and more work uh, in synergies yeah and then kind of building on the whole note of like how do we create more efficient philanthropy and how do we get more communication and how do we meet these goals what is social entrepreneurship and like how might that also be helping us try to hit these goals 
Right. So social entrepreneurship, we think about, again, the spectrum we said before from the complete for-profit oriented organizations to the complete philanthropic ones are those who still want to, in, in the spectrum, they're still closer to the, you know, wanting to have profits, but that they own not only value financial profit, they also value uh, social and environmental um, and environmental uh, welfare, basically. They're trying to promote uh Yes, profit, but within certain boundaries. So we don't want to have any child labor in our uh, in our chain of supply or in our, uh, especially in our own uh, workforce. We want uh, X amount of holidays. You know, want people to to feel good and to work in good life uh, in good uh, in good uh, work situation. And we don't want to just sacrifice everything for the sake of profit, which kind of. Uh, if you take it from a, a spin around, you should actually ask what are uh, non-social uh, entrepreneurship, right? So well, what does it mean to be yeah. a non, or mm. if you're not a social entrepreneur, yeah. right? What's, that, that's kind of, uh, everybody should say, all the companies should be social entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Uh, even if you're for-profit, you should want to maximize everything, not only, not only capital. But yeah, so social entrepreneurs, those who are uh, basically putting a larger percentage or a lot of importance in generating value beyond only their financial returns. Mm -hmm. And then is there data showing that they are effective? So there is uh, actually a work by the director of the Center in Philanthropy here mm -hmm. uh, that is called uh, Corporations as the New Philanthropists, mm -hmm. uh, that basically they, they touch on, on this and showing that long-term organizations that are uh, more concerned about their employees' welfare, about basically about being better uh, in uh, ESG uh, terms, they're also performing better uh, than other companies. So they are less, they're more resilient to say natural shocks, they're more resilient to, to, cri to crisis. Uh, however, there is limited data on it, so we, we don't really know for sure yet. Um, but yeah, so hopefully it will show, it will come up again, bottom up, mm -hmm. it will be come up naturally that the organizations are doing better also in not only in generating profits, they will also be more long lasting yeah. and uh, better than other companies. But there is some data that shows that. Yeah. And then kind of scaling back a bit, do you view like philanthropy as being a more effective way to create change? Or do you think that like for-profit companies have the ability to really improve lives more so? Where do you like see that balance playing out? So I think philanthropic organizations have more drive to mm -hmm. create this change and uh, less means. And for-profit companies have more means but less initiative to mm -hmm. do it. So I think that the the truth lies in, in in the middle. So that combining, for instance, for blended finance or alternative approaches, combining uh, the logics of both types of organizations um, would help then create different types of uh, of solutions. And in some cases, we'll find that the purely philanthropic initiatives will be better uh, than the than the for-profit ones. There could be situations where, say, in education, it would be very, very hard to show that you can generate profit um, just by um, by educating. So the the idea of uh, um, of having a you know bringing the market solution that's what you yeah. ideally want at some point right something that is self sustainable to a certain problem is not feasible so in that case philanthropic the philanthropic approach is better other situations that vice versa right so i think what we need to be is uh, promoting both approaches and and trying to be as flexible as possible to and, and provide as much data as possible to figure out what's the right mixture of the two uh, approaches so that then we can uh, we can <coughs> generate uh, all the change we need um, as fast as possible certainly and then as we transition out a little bit 
Could you tell us how studying philosophy impacted in any way your work within philanthropy? And then also maybe even what it is about philanthropy philanthropy that you find beautiful? Right. So um, for the first question, I think like what philosophy teaches, uh, teaches you is mostly a, a method and a way of thinking. And it's what benefited me, I think, the most. It was especially when, as I went on to have a quite interdisciplinary career, mm. is to find connections between or ways of uh, bringing one approach to uh, a different field that m- a philosophical mind it's uh, finds it easier than than someone who's trained in a specific way because you you don't have a normal if you want uh, and when you're uh, when you're thinking about uh, problems in an interdisciplinary way uh, then not having a standard uh, a, a strong standard then helps you see things more uh, the many faces of of a thing and so in terms of uh, you know what's what's beautiful about philanthropy, it's really this um, uh, surprising, if you, if you want, uh, need for so many people to just help others, right? To promote society, help others, and you know, you talk about WWF. There's so people, so many people passionate about helping you know animals. So you don't, yeah. don't even have to think about you know helping your neighbor. That it comes, it's almost like uh, taken for given. But there is a drive in people that they really want to be. Uh, to to do good, um, so hopefully we'll manage to by studying philanthropy and uh, promoting philanthropy, we'll manage to to you know uh, bring even more people to realize or, or to find ways in which they can do their own share of creating goods uh, for, for society. Yeah. And that's what's uh, really uh, the beauty of it. So we, newspapers sell negative and sad stories, yeah. and you look at philanthropy, you find a bit the, the opposite. So it's uh, uh, it's good it's good to see that, that there is so much good also happening and only. Uh, negative things yeah do you have any favorite philanthropies or do you have any words of advice for people looking to like get involved in philanthropy yeah i do have a word of advice and it's uh you know philanthropy it's a very nice uh nice thing to do and but uh getting some training and thinking really about how to do it well it's uh, probably a better a better way of doing it than just waking up a morning and decide to solve a, a next problem without any expertise on it um so i think you're really getting some training in how to do philanthropy properly is uh, my my strongest advice and in terms of um, a philanthropist i can really think of yeah. catching me off guard here <laughs> yeah <laughs> Now, yeah. if you if you think of any, we'll put it on the website. Excellent. Even if it's like your personal favorite, just we'll put something up. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, thanks a lot. And good luck with the rest of your podcasts. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.